Well, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. And that should be on page 981 of your pew Bible. It's Philippians chapter 3 this morning. And if you've been with us for the past several weeks here at First Presbyterian Church, you'll know that we have been in the midst of a series of sermons through the Ten Commandments. And we're going to come back next week and pick that up. But for today, what I want to do is take some time to zero in on how the Apostle Paul understood the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how that invigorated his life and and shaped who he understood himself to be in light of who Christ was. The resurrection of Christ is a historical fact and it's a theological truth. And it's very easy for us to allow things like facts and truth to remain just kind of on the outskirts of our life, to where it very rarely penetrates the practical realities of our life. But I think what Paul understood about this and what he wants us to see is that nothing can be further from the truth. Nothing should be further from the truth. The resurrection was the thing that fueled his life. We're going to discover a little bit about what that was like this morning. But before we do, we're going to read the passage before us. And you'll know in your bulletin it says that we're going to read Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. But I want to just move back just a hair to verse 4 and begin our reading there. We'll begin reading in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 through verse 11. This is God's Word. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Amen. This is God's Word to us this morning. Well, one of the truly great songs of my generation, and it's one of those songs that really seems to have stood the test of time, was written by a band named U2. And the title of the song is, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. It's about 25 years old or so now, and it's still on the radio all the time, and many of you could sing all the lyrics for me, verbatim, straight on through. And I think it's a song that has resonated with so many people. And the reason why is because I think that we can we understand that song, and it's part of our reality. We understand what it's like to climb the highest mountains and run through the fields in order to find what it is that we're looking for, in order to find significance and find meaning and and find a reason to wake up in the morning. But it's still the case that behind all of our pursuits and all of our achievements and all the things that we do, very often we find ourselves still lacking in that meaning, still searching for what it is that we're looking for. We still haven't found it yet. John D. Rockefeller. It's a name familiar, I know, to many of you. He was 
the wealthiest man in the world at one point in time. In 1928, his net worth was around a billion dollars. That's 1928 money. I can just imagine what that would be today. Someone asked him what, at one time how much money it takes for a person to be happy. And he said, just a little bit more. Maybe that describes you. Maybe you've, you've achieved many of your dreams, many of your ambitions, and, and your longings uh, have been met in terms of what the goals were that you set for yourself, but you still haven't found what you're looking for. And maybe you're someone who generally does have what you want and you find yourself to be generally content. You know, they say that, that money doesn't buy happiness, but a lack of it sure buys unhappiness, doesn't it? I mean, it can bring some pain in life. A, a lack of companionship, friendship, can make your life uncomfortable. You, you can be in good health and have a bad day, but if you're in bad health, it sure is hard to have a good day, isn't it? So much of our life is spent on pursuing a lot of those things. And they're not inherently bad things, and we actually get some pleasure out of them, and they're all good. But what Paul has come to discover, and what he wants you and I to see, is that if we shape our life around those things, if those things become the defining features of our life, then we are utterly hopeless, whether we realize it or not. Utterly hopeless. This is something that Paul was acutely aware of in his life. The, the first few verses that we read here of Philippians chapter 3 is a, is a rather impressive resume that Paul lays out for us. I mean, he's laying out his credentials, his background, and, and he was a religious, moral, uh, educational, intellectual person of the highest degree in that day and age. And he was at the top of the heap. And those were the things that defined him. Those are the things that fueled his life. I think that we can all understand that. We even notice that in the way we introduce people. We, a normal way in which we introduce people in our culture is by saying, Hey Dave, I'd like you to meet Mike. Mike is an attorney with the Larry Moen Curley Law Firm. Mike, meet Dave. Dave is a financial advisor with Joe Schmo Financial Advisors. We introduce people by... by defining them by what it is that they do, what they're all about, by, by what it is that they have accomplished. And it's a, it's a normal way of doing it. And there's nothing wrong with that. But for Paul, it was a bigger deal. For Paul, what Paul did was who he was. That, those lists of accomplishments that he just listed for us in Philippians chapter 3, that's who he was. That defined him. And I would suggest to you that many, many people, many people who sit in the pews of a church 52 Sundays out of the year who claim to follow Jesus Christ still understand themselves in that way. They still understand themselves in light of what it is that they do rather than what Jesus has done for them. They're still viewing themselves in that way. They see themselves, they understand themselves and define themselves by being lavish or frugal or, or funny or sophisticated or brilliant or successful or whatever it is. They draw their identity from their parenting or from their marriage or, or, or from the, the freedom of, of their singleness or any number of things. We could go on and on about it. And Paul was exactly like that. Paul was exactly like that until a rather significant thing happened to him in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, 
Paul is making his way down the Damascus Road and everything changes for him. His, his life up to this point in time was, was driven by his resume and there's no reason to believe that, the, that his life was inherently unhappy or dissatisfying. I think that he was very much content with his life. But in Acts chapter 9, you discover that Jesus found him. Jesus found him. He comes to Paul while he's dead in his sin, without hope, without God in the world, even though he thinks the whole time that he's following after God, and Jesus comes and makes him his. Paul wasn't the kind of person who just tried Jesus because he tried everything else and it didn't work, so he just tried Jesus for his life. He doesn't just go out and find Jesus. See, that's not the way your salvation works. It's not as if you and Jesus are partners in this thing. Jesus comes to a person who is utterly dead, without any hope, and he takes the scales off his eyes and enables him to see Jesus Christ and embrace him as he's offered to him in the gospel. And he enlivens his souls. And when that happened to Paul, everything changed. Everything changed. The object of his affection changed. His heart changed. His longings, his his aspirations, his self-definition changed. All that stuff that he's just listed for us in Philippians chapter 3 that he built his life on prior to knowing Christ, it all lost its luster. It wasn't shiny and glittery anymore. In fact, it wasn't only dim to him, he considers it to be a pile of junk. Those of you who grew up maybe reading the King James Version would read that word rubbish, it's translated dung in the King James Version. That's a somewhat accurate description of that word. It's manure almost literally. That's how he considers it. It's not only stuff that has no ultimate value, but it's the stuff that gets in the way of, of his joy. It, it, it hinders his well-being in Christ and how he understands himself in Christ and the joy that he derives from Christ. All of his accomplishments and all of his resources and all of his privileges was all just a big pile of manure to him. You know, all of us have these good things in our lives. And and they're good things and we should enjoy them, but they oftentimes reach a place in our lives where they become ultimate. They become ultimate in order for us to be content people. And it crowds out Christ from becoming of surpassing worth to us as Christ had become to Paul. Other things have surpassing worth to us so often and not Christ. And perhaps that's where some of you are this morning. Perhaps that's where many of you are this morning. You're full to the brim with satisfaction and security and hope in all of the stuff in your life. And you're so full that you have no appetite for Christ anymore. It's a dim appetite at best. Proverbs 14.12 says this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Something that Paul understood. He came to understand that all those things that were his deepest affection and the things that he had built his life upon were going to render him utterly hopeless and that he needed Christ more than anything in the world. So he puts aside defining himself by his accomplishments 
and begins to be defined by Jesus' accomplishment for him. He puts aside all of that, and when he does that, he actually begins to find what he's looking for. He finds what he's looking for, and perhaps more aptly put, Jesus found him. Jesus came and found him, and he wanted to know Christ at that point more than he wanted to know anything else in the world. Christ became his greatest joy. And you can tell that just by reading this passage. It's a short passage, but we read things like this. He says, whatever gain I had, I had counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's caught up in the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He counts everything as rubbish in order that he may do what? Gain Christ and be found in him. He wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of even sharing in his sufferings. What Paul's saying here is he wants to be completely marinated in everything that Christ is and everything that Christ is about. He wants his life to have a brand new definition and a brand new shape to that. You can tell just in the way in which Paul is spelling this out, he's not interested in just being able to regurgitate a bunch of facts about Jesus. He's not trying to get the scoop on who Jesus is. He wants to know Him. Not as this abstract personality, but personally know Him. You know, all of us know facts about certain people. We know, in the past week or two, that apparently Jennifer Lopez is the most beautiful woman in the world. That's what People Magazine has told us. We know scoop about our favorite celebrities and facts about politicians and statistics on our favorite athletes. We, we know a lot of stuff about these people, but we don't actually know them. We don't know their hearts. We don't really know what they're about, no matter how many articles can be written about them in magazines and newspapers and so on and so forth. See, Paul's desire here is that he, he not just know about Christ, but that he really know Him. There are facts to know, yes, that's for sure, but the facts are designed to inflame his heart, to invigorate his heart, so that when he goes and does the ordinary stuff during the week, his heart is grounded in Jesus Christ rather than grounded in his resume and his accomplishments. He doesn't want to just know about the resurrection and to agree that it happened and to agree that it's a pretty important thing in the Christian faith. He wants to know the power of that resurrection. He wants to know and experience that power. You know, today is is Easter. It's Easter Sunday and we give special attention to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But my hunch here is that Paul is not so much interested in just giving it a kind of one day out of the year special focus in his life. For him, it's a 365 day, 24 hour a day situation for him, longing for him and desire for him. He wants, to, he wants to have the remembrance and the power of that fueling his life. And I think on one level, what he means by that is he wants to have a greater personal knowledge, existential knowledge of the forgiveness and the righteousness that Jesus has given to him. You know, Paul's listed out his accomplishments, but you'll also notice that one of the things that he lists here is that he was a persecutor of the church. We explored this last week when we explored the Sixth Commandment about where it says, you shall not murder. Guess what, my friends? Paul was a murderer. 
And, and you cannot help but have a guilty conscience when you do something like that. Paul understood the level of his guilt. You start reading in 2 Corinthians and you see that he starts talking about this thorn in the flesh. We don't really know what that was, but maybe it was some kind of besetting sin that was just something that he was having the hardest time in the world putting to death. And you'll see that he considers himself. He looks at himself, the Apostle Paul, as being the chief of sinners. He calls himself a wretched man who does stuff that he doesn't want to do and doesn't do the stuff that he should do. And, it, and it, he's got this conscience that he is a colossal sinner, a guilty man before God. Take a look at your life. Take a look at your life, my friends. Our, our sin is so chronic and so pervasive that there's not one area of our life that's untouched by it. Not one area that's untouched by it. And whether you have a guilty conscience or not, that's the reality. I mean, what, what explains why you would ever, even for a second of your life, have a cold, bitter, angry, depressed, saddened heart? Why, why would that be the case? It's because of not only the fact that you have been wronged, that you have been sinned against, but it's because of the guilt that you have as well. It's because of things that you have done that have failed to honor God and failed to love your neighbor. And you're weighed down by it in, in ways that are far more pervasive than you could ever begin to know. And the bad news is that it doesn't just vanish into thin air by thinking happy thoughts. It, it doesn't just poof and it's gone. It, it doesn't go away when your circumstances change. You carry it with you wherever you go. It's always there. And the only way that it ever gets loosened is by coming to know the forgiveness that Jesus has accomplished for you in the Gospel. Not just knowing about it, but really knowing it and internalizing it. Because when you consider the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you know that you have an absolute, firm, unwavering promise that your guilt and your shame has been literally plunged into the depths of the sea. It, it, it's beyond the scope of any remembrance whatsoever. And that kind of takes us back to the cross a little bit, doesn't it? It takes us back to the cross because on the cross, all of your debt gets credited to Christ and all of His riches get credited to you. All of your sin and condemnation becomes His and all of His righteousness and peace becomes yours. But the only reason why that's the, the case is because Jesus actually rose from the dead. Jesus actually rose from the dead. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we are all wasting our time here this morning. We're wasting our time with the whole Christian life. It's, it's a hoax. It's a crutch for weak-minded people who are superstitious and need to find something better to do with their life. If the resurrection didn't happen, get out of here and go get on a boat and do something fun today. That's what he's saying if the resurrection didn't happen. But if it did happen, then everything that Jesus said and did matters. Everything. It defines our life. It's foolish to disregard that. It tells you, the resurrection, that you're no longer defined by your guilt. You're no longer defined by the, the ugliness of your life that maybe only you know about. 
That's not who you are. That's not how Jesus sees you. He's not standing there with his arms crossed, with a scowled head, with, with, a, with his foot tapping, bitter and angry and disappointed in you. He's standing there looking at you, saying exactly what the Father said to the Son. You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. You know why he can say that to you? Because if you've rested in Him, you are what Paul calls in Christ. You are a new creation. He sees you with having the same righteousness as Jesus Christ had. That's a beautiful thing. That's why your sin no longer condemns you. And that ought to be incredibly liberating to you. Incredibly liberating to you. That's why I'm so encouraged when I, when I meet people who have an acute knowledge that their own personal history is one of very active, intentional rebellion against God or a, a very who-cares attitude about Him. And then they come to the place and it dawns on them that their sin is what actually should condemn them, but instead of doing so, it has condemned Christ. He stood in our place and He's given them forgiveness. And so they understand that all of that stuff that they've been carrying around that accuses them, that, that, that condemns them, has all been paid for. It's been cast off as far as the east is from the west. It's no, it's no longer in the realm of memory. And, and it frees them up and they actually have some measure of joy in Jesus Christ. Imagine that. Someone enjoying their relationship with Jesus Christ. And they experience that. They know that at the core of their being. But my friends, it's not like you have to be an axe murderer to know that. It's not like you have to have these, these wild, public, heinous things in your background to know that because it's the story of everyone who knows Christ. Even if you're someone who grew up in a covenant household, your parents were Christian, you look back on your life and you can't remember a day in your life where you really didn't know Jesus Christ. As far as you can tell, you've just known Him. He's always been at the core of your being. Still, your story is one of utter hopelessness without Jesus Christ. Accomplishing your forgiveness by not just dying on the cross, anybody can do that, but by rising again by rising again to accomplish its work. The resurrection is a sign and a promise that you are actually forgiven. And now you can live in light of the fact that there is no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you can enjoy the power of that resurrection. The power of that resurrection. It tells you that there is nothing in the world that you can do to get Jesus to love you more and nothing in the world that you can do to get Him to love you less. That's good news, my friends. You're completely forgiven. And Paul has a robust personal knowledge of that. and He wants you to have that too. But there's a danger in that, right? There's a bit of a danger in understanding that. And the danger is that if there's nothing that I can do to add or subtract to the love of Christ for me, then what prevents me from going out and doing whatever I please? And living however I want? Well, Paul... He's not going to let us get away with that line of thinking for even one second. In fact, he devotes a whole chapter to it in Romans chapter 6. But here's where it seems like Paul is going in light of that. When he says that he wants to know Christ, he's saying that he wants to know that deep personal relationship with Him. 
a personal knowing of Him. But when He's saying He wants to know the power of the resurrection, He's saying that He wants to know and experience the transformational power that comes out of that relationship. He wants to know the power that comes out of that relationship. In other words, He wants His life to resemble the life of Jesus Christ. He wants to be just like Him. Because the power of the resurrection means that there was power within God and only within God to conquer the one thing that is eventually going to get us all. That He was able to conquer death. My friends, when it is time to go, it's time to go. And there's not a thing you can do about it. But the resurrection tells you that there is something so supremely powerful about Jesus Christ that He's actually able to conquer the sting of death. There's no more sting in death because He's conquered it. And then Paul sees that. He understands that. But then he looks at his own life and he sees all these areas of deadness. I mean, I hate the areas of deadness in my life. The, the, the areas of indifference and anger and bitterness. Some of you feel that way. You're, you're angry and bitter with someone. And, and you know because you're, you know, you're a Christian that you should forgive that person. And maybe you've lied to yourself by telling yourself that you have, but you really haven't. And in your heart of hearts, they're still deeply indebted to you. Maybe you have all kinds of insecurities that you mask in a whole host of ways, but it just kind of bubbles beneath the surface. It's, It's always just kind of there. We could go on for hours about those things, but the question is, how is your anger going to be turned into forgiveness? How is your insecurity going to be turned into Christ's exalting confidence? How is your selfishness going to be turned into compassion? How is the secret sin of yours going to be channeled into a way that glorifies God, that loves your neighbor, and that works for your own well-being? He gives us the answer. And the answer is not knowing about good theology of the resurrection. No, the answer is knowing the power of the resurrection. Knowing the power of it. On Friday night this past week, I drove up to Jackson to preach at a Good Friday service up there. And every time I go to Jackson, I'm just astonished by how awful the roads are up there. I mean... It's, it's just unreal. We lived in Jackson for about three and a half years and the first thing I did when I moved away was get new shocks on my car because they were completely destroyed after living there for a while. They blame it on this thing called the Yazoo Clay. Ever heard of that? The Yazoo Clay. This, this dirt moves around, it shifts, and it creates potholes in the, in the roads and it warps and twists and bends the road to where... I mean, it almost would be better off if they just didn't pave it at all. The roads are just off. And friends, I think that's what happens to our lives when we build our lives on junk. When we build our lives on something other than Christ and the power of His resurrection. Most people spend their lives dreaming about manure about junk, about rubbish, about dung. And every attempt to build our life on that kind of stuff 
good stuff that even becomes ultimate stuff, the stuff that drives our life, that fuels it, that makes it worth living in the morning, it's all a bunch of rubbish. It's all junk compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord and the power of His resurrection. The overflow of building your life on Yazoo clay style junk is the, the appearance of anger, of insecurity, of self-righteousness, of self-absorption, and it leaves all sorts of potholes and warped twists in your life. But to build your life on the power of the resurrection means that His resurrection power is your foundation. That's what's supporting your life. Paul says that he wants to know that. He wants to know the one who's, who's conquered the thing that no one can conquer. He's conquered death. And so if the, if the power of the resurrection is so powerful that it conquers death, then what area of your life is so broken that it can't be conquered either? That, that, that it can't be redeemed and transformed by the power of Christ? What area of your life can't be transformed by that? I don't want you to misunderstand me. There, there's no such thing as perfectionism in this life. You will... You will never stop struggling with sin. You're going to battle it until the day you die. And there's one point and one point only where there will be perfection, and that is in the resurrection of the dead at the end when you are standing in glory with Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul talks about here in verse 11, that he might by some means attain the the resurrection of the dead. Christ has defeated the enemy on the cross and in the resurrection. That's what it tells you. But the, the battle is still waging on. But listen, my friends, the, the battle is against a defeated enemy. The enemy is defeated. He, he, he's down by like eight touchdowns with two minutes left. He ain't going to win that game. But he's still there. And the power of the resurrection promises you that, but it also tells you that you're going to struggle. That life is a struggle. You, you struggle to glorify and enjoy God, but you do so in the power of the Holy Spirit which raised Jesus Christ from the dead and which dwells in you. And if you know Him, you have that promise. And Paul's desire for himself is that we would constantly set our sights upon that. But there's a battle still waging on and there's still suffering. There's still suffering there. And that was part and parcel of Paul's life. You know, he becomes a follower of Christ and the very next thing you discover about Paul is that he's shipwrecked out in the middle of the ocean. People are throwing rocks at him. And every single church that he preaches in tries to run him out of town. I mean, how's that for the prosperity gospel? I, mean, I can't think of one person anywhere in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation who had any degree of confidence in God intentional faith in Him, who, who sought to live their life for them, whose life wasn't normally characterized by acute levels of suffering. That's true of everybody. People go to Job, it's everybody. All of the disciples, except for John, were, were murdered. Welcome to the club, my friends. Suffering is a gospel principle. It's a gospel principle. The, the principle is this. The only way in which you get to the resurrection is by going through the cross first. 
The only way in which you get to Easter Sunday is by going through Good Friday first. It's through the suffering of the cross before you get the joy of the resurrection. Your your life is going to have thorns and thistles at every turn. Some of you are thinking, well, gosh, maybe it'll get better in the summer. Maybe it'll get better in the fall. Maybe it'll get better in the winter. Maybe it'll get better after my kids reach this age or that age or I retire or this or that. It's always going to be a struggle. How are you going to get through that? You get through it by living in light of the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's your only hope in life and death. Your only hope. Your only hope. I want to just close with this. Many of you have been in the church for a long time. Or at least you've been acquainted with the church for a long time. And you've heard this story of the resurrection. And you've heard this sermon before. Yeah, you've, you've heard the story. And you know a lot about this. But I wonder if it's something that you really internalized. If you've owned it for yourself. If it's done its work in the cross. And in your heart. Because if it, if it hasn't, I'm afraid that you might be settling for rubbish. I'm afraid that you might be building your life on a pile of junk rather than enjoying something and someone that is so much greater. And my friends, that's no small thing. There's a, there's a warning there. Because if you build your identity on something other than Christ alone, then you may very well get exactly what you want, which is complete independence from God. And you'll avoid Him and He'll let you have that and you can see how that works out for you in the end. But I'm pretty sure you're not going to like it. The only way to escape that, my friends, is to genuinely know Jesus Christ. And to stop trusting in your record and to stop trusting in your resume and in your accomplishments and your aspirations and to start trusting in the One who's worth knowing, who's paid your debt in full and no longer condemns you for it. And not just to know that, but to know the power, the power of His resurrection. If that's something that you already believe in, my friends, don't go back to the trash heap. Don't go back to that. Build your life on His resurrection power and on knowing Jesus Christ supremely. And if you're here today and if you don't know that or you're not sure that you know that, consider yourself invited to come to Him. Because He promises that whoever comes to Him, He will never cast out. That's good news. Let's pray. Our Father... We look at a passage like this. We look at Paul's heart, which is just put on full display before us. And, and, and I, we see our hearts and we see that we may not be there. And that's okay. Lord, we admit it. We confess it. It's where we're at. But we long to be there. Make us people who long to be there. Make us people who, who long to know You. Not just about You, not just facts about You, but to really know You and to know the power of Your resurrection. It's so powerful that it cannot, that death cannot hold the King of kings and Lord of lords down. Let us know 
that hope, that confidence, and that joy that You've accomplished for us in the resurrection. And let it fuel our lives for the sake of Your glory, for the sake of other people, for our own joy as well. We pray this in the name of Him who came such a distance for us, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.